Hi and welcome to Why It Matters, a podcast series coming to you from the Straits Times newsroom, where we take a close look at one news story every week. My name is Jeremy Aoyong, and this week, to finally put a cap on the crazy month we've had here in Singapore, I thought we'd do one last show on the Trump-Kim summit. So we've already talked about the agreement and what happened on the day itself in the previous podcast. Do look out for that if you missed it. And so this time, I want to talk about what went into putting this whole thing together. So to speak, the making of the Trump-Kim summit. And with me, I have three people who have had an inside look at the preparations. Tan Tam May, normally she covers crime, but she has been on top of all the security arrangements for the summit. Tiffany Fumikote, who covers hospitality, and she was one of the few people who got to see the different rooms at Capella before they took all the setup down. And Tam Yuen Si, who covers politics, but has been talking to people on the government on what the process has been like of getting Singapore to host this. Welcome, ladies. So the reason we're doing this now is because I guess in the lead up to this, we didn't really don't know that much. But now that everybody has gone home, they have finally opened up a little bit and have been talking to us about what it's like. So I guess I'll start with Tiffany. Tiffany, you've spoken to the hotel staff at Shangri-La where Donald Trump was staying and at Capella where the summit was taking place. What was the preparations like? Let's start with Shangri-La. I mean, they've done this kind of thing before. Was it any different this time? Yeah, so, I mean, Shangri-La, we all know, has experience hosting heads of state, high-level events like the Shangri-La Security Dialogue, which wrapped up just before the summit. So the hotel's general manager was saying that this is actually their biggest operation that they pulled off to date because usually they get about maybe six months to prepare. This time they got about a month's notice. And halfway through, you know, Trump called it off. So it was really, he said, all hands on deck for about 950 of the staff members there. And on top of that, they also had to fly in about 20 of their senior management and staff from other hotels in the region, from the corporate office in Hong Kong. Things they had to do were actually planning the logistics of the guest rooms, security, extra food for all the Americans. How much of the hotel did the delegation take up? So we know they stayed in the Valley Wing, which is the more kind of exclusive part. It has its own lobby and entrance. They took up at least two to three floors. Trump himself stayed in the top level. It's called the Shangri-La Suite, which has its own lift, a gym, which I'm sure he used, (laughs) many other (laughs) facilities. It is also its own dedicated butler service. So the head butler was saying that he was on call for up to like 20 hours a day when this, this, uh, the delegation he, was there. Was he able to share any requests? No, him? no, we don't know how many Diet Cokes the president ordered. But uh, yeah, so he was just on hand to handle everything. Okay, so you said 950 people. Yeah, that's, that's the normal staff strength. So then they had to bring in another 20 to 30 people with expertise in different areas. Uh, and you got a look at the Shangri-La suite, like the, the actual room where... No, you didn't? <laughs> no, no they, did, they didn't want to let us take a look. They gave us some photos. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very fancy suite. We, for the St. Regis side, we don't know much about what... Yeah, they, they didn't want to give much detail, but okay. from what we heard, he brought along his own chef. Uh, as oh. part of the delegation. So Kim Jong-un brought his own chef. Yeah, so while... Uh, and his own food, I suppose. Yeah, his own food. So while Trump was eating food prepared by the Shangri-La, I think at St. Regis, they were probably cooking their own food. So what was the Capella like? You went there the day after. Yeah, so uh, Capella, they only had about three weeks to prepare to host the summit. So first of all, they had to stop accepting bookings from June 7th all the way to the 15th. Because they had to keep it, you know, very... Security had to be very tight. They had to, you know, keep it hush-hush. 
they had existing bookings, right? So, so were there had, people yeah. actually staying in the hotel when? No, the so they so people who were staying there during the period actually actually had to be moved elsewhere. Wow! So they had to call up people with reservations and say, "I'm so sorry, you know, we will put you up in one of these other hotels uh, in the area." And then within the days leading up to the summit, actually they had staff members stationed at the entrance, turning away people who didn't have uh, official business with the hotel. But the hotel also, it it sounded to me like they were there was a lot of attention to detail. Like they cared like what color flower went into the thing, right? Yeah. So um, yeah, what struck me, I think, talking to a lot of the staff members was how much detail went into it, from the color of the flower arrangements, which were green and white, to kind of keep. They said it was very neutral. Yeah, and they also wanted to include Singapore in some of the the furnishings. So, for example, the library where the two men first had their one-on-one meeting. The books on the bookshelf were also curated to include um, a lot of Singapore titles. So, like Lee Kuan Yew's Hard Truths, local cookbooks, history books. Then, of course, that table that was on loan that was put in the Cantonese restaurant where they had their meeting and later signed the agreement there. The hotel's GM also talked about... I mean, he actually kind of teared up talking about how much work went into <laughs> this. Tears of joy. <laughs> I think it's just tears of tiredness. Yeah, I mean, that, that's actually the his first year anniversary working at the hotel was on the summit date. So I think uh, they were all kind of, you know, suffering from lack of sleep. So they were just really tired. And th- th- so that day, they all, all the staff came back for like a group photo. Uh, um, and then they had to just take everything down. Okay, tell me, uh, staying on Capella, what were the security preparations like there? Let's focus on that because I think Shangri-La, you know, just like with hospitality, they also have some experience securing that. So I think for Capella, it was the first time they had such a high-level security event on, on the island of Sentosa itself. And if you look at Capella, you see like, you can see the sea and it's very porous, you know, it's very open air. So I think for security arrangements, they had to take into consideration that, you know, they didn't want to put the whole hotel on lockdown and, you know, basically put a cage over the hotel. So they had to do things like put in thermal cameras into the plants and put more CCTV, station more officers. What does thermal cameras in the plants do? So I think when I spoke to some of the officers, they said there was a Concern that people might be hiding in the forest. Oh, you know, <laughs> like because there's so much greenery around yeah. Uh, Cabela. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's a little first time um, for such a high level event. They actually had to guard the coast as well, like, Because normally at Shangri La, you just there's no beach, walls, nah. Yeah. So they had to call in the police coast guards, and that was quite new for them also. And from what I understand, actually the police were doing the security for the access control. That means you know in and out of Capella, but right at the heart of it, it was mostly um, done by the US and the North Korean side. La. Okay, did Shangri-La do anything different? Or? Shangri-La, I'm not sure, but I did speak to the Shangri-La commander and I think for them it's, very, it's a lot of muscle memory because they've done it many times and it comes quite easy to them. But uh, nonetheless, because of the short time span they re- that they had to prepare, they had to jump into action really quickly. La. And I understand also you spoke to some of the motorcade commanders, which were Singaporeans. What is a motorcade commander actually? What do they do? They basically do a lot of planning for when the motorcade moves off. You know, you know when you see a motorcade pass by, there are actually 60 vehicles, so it's actually a very, very long kind of vehicle trail. And they are in the last segment of the motorcade, which is made of like about 40 vehicles. And they actually sit in the second car of the, of the last segment. And they're there to make sure that you know, the whole motorcade stays together and that they're going on the right path. Or if there's an obstruction, they can adapt really quickly. So it's actually a very, a very fluid job. They really have to think on, on their feet. And from what I understand, there were quite a few last-minute changes. Mm. So we know that the Kim's night walk okay. was not planned. 
So while the whole motorcade team didn't go down for the night walk, they had to sort of arrange a smaller team to, to escort him there and drive him from place to place as well. Lah. So, and they don't... Typically, this motorcade commander is not from the respective delegations. It is provided by the local law enforcement. Because you need local knowledge, what is it? Um, so, I think more of a planning thing as well. So, they have to know the roads well. They have to know that the limos are quite long. <laughs> they can't make sharp turns. So, like a bus like almost. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah, and I think part of the thing they have to ensure is that, you know, some of these drivers that are coming from the delegation, right. they are left-hand drive, if I'm not wrong, in Yeah, I believe North both Korea. of uh, yeah, US and North Korea. Korea. So drive. they also had to sort of um, explain the road rules a bit to them and to sort of get them used to driving on the other side of the road. Lah. Okay, Yancy, your turn. So I got a sense from Tiffany and Tammy that part of the challenge was that everything was last minute. Was that the sense you also got from the government officials? Yeah, definitely the short time frame they had to plan this whole thing. And a lot of things were kept under wraps until the last minute. I mean, because of the sensitivity of this whole summit, you know, it's the first between a sitting US president and the North Korean leader. Their countries are still technically at war. So there was a lot of sensitivity with regards to security, as Tammy said. Okay, and um, in terms of challenges, like with Shangri-La and Capella, I know we have, we have some familiarity with how the US delegation works, but nearly none at all with how a visiting North Korean leader would operate. How did they deal with that challenge? Some of the public officers we spoke to mentioned this because uh, we are quite unfamiliar with the North Koreans. We don't have previous bilateral you know, visits to model on, so we weren't very sure how to host the North Korean leader. And uh, I think a lot of things required planning and preparation. So they actually needed to tell the North Korean delegation a lot of details and things like that just to make sure that the things we have arranged won't offend the North Korean leader accidentally or doesn't cause any security concerns for them. And how, how important was it that uh, the two sides be treated equally or at least appear to be treated equally? So this was one of the requests of apparently both sides that they were here for a bilateral meeting and that they should be treated equally. But especially for the North Koreans, they were very empathic about that, that they should be treated as equals. So even things like the hotels, they wanted to stay in a hotel of the same class and all that. So when people from our Ministry of Foreign Affairs brought them around, you know, we had to tell them like, okay, the US delegation looks like they might be preferring this or that hotel. So if you want something of the same class, then, you know, maybe you should consider this, right. this, this, yeah, things like that. They wanted the motorcades and the welcome parties to be, you know, the same. Like, if they have these people welcoming them, then, yeah. Maybe. And the motorcade has to be the same length, everything. Well, I think that was one of the things we made sure of, yeah. So that visually, when they go out, it looks like, you know, they're treated equally. Okay, and then I guess one last thing for all of you before we go. I, I got the sense of the short time. But can you guys talk a little bit more about what happened when Donald Trump actually cancelled the thing? Did everything stop? Did people stand down or not? When Donald Trump cancelled and then, you know, like one week later reinstated, what happened in that flux period? Actually, what we heard was that we did unscramble some of the preparations when he cancelled it. But he reinstated it, I think, within two days, if I'm not wrong. So I'm, it wasn't like, you know, we stopped for a long time. <laughs> I think the security side, I heard the police guys you know for a while they they could take leave and then some of them had to when, when he confirmed it again they had to uh, make other arrangements again la. so I think so it was they froze leave and then they unfroze it and then they froze it back from what I understand he didn't exactly freeze it but it's just that you know everyone didn't know where they should 
they could take it or not, you know, and there was this uncertainty and some people thought, okay, I can finally go, then suddenly he confirmed it again. So they were like, oh, okay, I guess not, you know, so there was that uncertainty la, for security side. Hotels-wise? Hotels, uh, they said they kept planning even after it was cancelled because there's no way they could have pulled it off if they stopped and then, <laughs> yeah, so they just kept going. Alright, okay, I guess that's it. And I think that will be the last time we talk about the Trumpkin Summit and why it matters. Okay, and thanks everyone for listening. Look out for more podcasts on various topics on The Straits Times and do send us your thoughts to podcast at sph.com.sg. 